Hello, I'm recording this from my car while I am uh, in the process of moving away from the downtown of the city where I live, uh, which I, as I may have mentioned in the first episode of this podcast, uh, was attacked, I would say, by Antifa left radicals in May, May 31st and June 1st, primarily of this year. Uh, my lease there, uh, I, to be clear, they attacked the police station and also got on the interstate next to the police station, which is actually illegal according to federal law, the, the local uh, state police are required to keep the interstates free for transit because the interstates, although we now use them for interstate travel, of course, they were originally constructed to move military around, and that is their primary purpose for national defense. So having the interstates become uh, inaccessible or blocked, taken over by radicals who may destroy the infrastructure or pose some kind of threat to law enforcement, um, or, you know, in some way take over that portion of the interstate and make it unusable to the military in the event of a military invasion. Uh, that is why the state police respond very forcefully to attempts to taking over the highway. In fact, I would guess that is why they were taking over the interstate as opposed to occupying portions of the downtown neighborhoods, uh, which they probably could have fairly easily done. Um, but, uh, I don't think the police would have stopped them. I think the, the, I think the goal was to create a reaction from the police that would then justify further action by the protesters and lead to an escalation, um, and so forth. So, in any case, I'm, I, I live next to that, or I lived next to that in May, June, uh, there was also a brief resurgence in July and August, um, early August, but the state police response was quite a bit more forceful in those later cases, and so it didn't get as out of control as it did in the initial, um, initial event. But in any case, I lived next to these protests slash attacks, I would, I would say attack is more accurate because they weren't holding signs, they were trying to take over a portion of a American city. Um, so I, I lived next to that and now I am moving and in moving I have to do all of the normal annoying moving things like uh, 
scheduling movers to pick up furniture. Um, there's always, of course, some things that you forgot to do that uh, are always the little things at the end of the move that take the longest time because you forgot about them. Um, so I have to go and get a container right now from the Target to help me move my, uh, <clears throat> like, plates and forks and knives and, and all this stuff that I just sort of didn't account for in my initial plan for the move. So that's the context for this discussion, and I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about freedom. Freedom, it is a concept that uh, gets thrown around quite a lot. Uh people on... It's interesting because the concept of freedom is almost not taken very seriously uh, today, as of 2020, particularly in the gentry-liberal, left-leaning suburban milieu, which I find myself in the midst of the concept of freedom is really has kind of become more of a right-wing issue, or at least the term freedom. Uh, it's much more common on the left uh, to talk about rights and equal rights or um, LGBT rights, and these different categories of rights <clears throat> which is interesting because I think those issues uh, are probably much more constructively thought of as issues of freedom. Uh, of course, <clears throat> you know, we need to define our terms here and get down to what we mean by freedom. Um, there's legal f definitions of things that you are free to do and not free to do. Um, there are different philosophical systems, concepts of freedom, and I will talk a bit about the Stoic version of freedom and what that entails exactly. I don't have my books with me right now because they're in storage, um, so I won't be able to bookmark and reference um, the volumes that I've been using in previous episodes. Uh, I'm probably going to be recording this mostly in my car while I'm driving, so I, it's probably for the best that I don't try to reference the books in, a, in any case. But, um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll go over freedom, talk maybe a bit, may, maybe take a little bit of a, a Nietzschean uh, left turn at one point and see uh, where that leads us. Okay, so I'm in the Target parking lot. I've got my things, and now it's time to roll. So what do we mean by freedom? <clears throat> well, as I see it, there's sort of uh, practical freedom, and there's, uh, let's call it uh, 
idealistic freedom. In uh, in the United States, we have the guarantee of freedom of speech. Uh, at least we're supposed to. And <clears throat> the basic concept of freedom of speech is that you can say anything provided that you are not uh, invoking a violence or in some way uh, inciting a, uh, a, a someone to do something bad, there are some limits on freedom of speech. It's not absolute. Uh, but for the most part, we can really say anything we want. We can criticize the government. We can uh, satirize someone's religion. We can say that the president is a Nazi. We can say that the president is great. We can call each other names. Uh, there's a lot of things we can do. Now there are certain limits within, within it. Like we, we have libel laws. Um, we have slander laws. I can't go in a public square and say... Uh, Joe Schmo uh, stole $10,000 from me and his business is, is terrible and crooked and you shouldn't, you shouldn't give him any more business. Uh, that is not legal. I can't lie in a way that damages your business. Uh, but that's more of a... That's more of a recompense for the damage that you can cause uh, using your speech... But you still have the right to say things. Um, so, in a very practical sense, when we talk about freedom, we're usually just meaning people are not restricted in some way. There's no restrictions placed on what you can say. Uh, there aren't any restrictions on what you can publish. Uh, you could write a book on any subject with no matter how uh, disgusting others may find it um, no matter how repulsive your political arguments might be <clears throat> you have a right to express those views what you don't have importantly speaking of political speech what you do not have is a guarantee that publishing something unsavory will not impact your reputation in some way. Um, that is often a, a bit that is sort of overlooked, I think, especially by those who are, let's call them edgelords, for lack of a better term. Uh, you can be an edgelord, and you can, you can say awful things online, but you do not have the right to be guaranteed that there will not be repercussions for what you've said. Um, others may lose respect for you. You could be terminated from your job, depending on how that would impact the reputation of your employer. There's a lot of angles to it that would, in fact, provide restrictions on your speech, in a sense. Um... So, 
freedom can be conceptualized as the lack of restrictions. Um, and if you're on the left and you're struggling to understand why there is so much resistance to lockdowns and mask mandates and these, these kinds of things, um, I would, I would ask you to think of it in terms of restrictions on, and with a restriction, um, you can place a restriction on someone temporarily, say, for the next, uh, four weeks, um, you, you won't be able to go outside, you won't be able to see your family, um, you won't be able to go to your job, there, there may be, you know, your employer may put you on furlough or temporary, temporary suspension so you wouldn't be getting paid, um, uh, we can place these restrictions on you for a, a set of time that we've determined in advance, say, uh, two weeks, four weeks, six, eight weeks, uh, it doesn't really matter what the period is, but if it's a temporary restriction and it has some, uh, known expiration date, uh, that, that is a restriction. It is a loss of freedom, uh, but it does not feel as though you, you have been permanently lost your freedom. Uh, it does not feel as though the restriction is existential in nature and will persist until the end of time. The problem with how <clears throat> the lockdown, shutdown, mask mandates, and so on have been implemented is that uh, from the beginning, the uh, state governments and federal governments that, and local counties that have been implementing these policies they, they made a critical mistake of, of creating a, a sense that the restrictions were temporary and that there was a known, uh, and, and justifiable, uh, limit to how long those restrictions would be in place. So, and, and I imagine this was done to help, uh, with compliance because as I said, people will uh, happily accept a, a temporary restriction, um, particularly if they think that it's for a uh, important cause, such as a public health issue. Um, in the early 2000s, it was a terrorism thing. We believe we were under attack by uh, foreign powers, uh, actors from another nation that were trying to damage the United States. So we accepted that uh, we wouldn't be able to fly the way that we used to be able to because we need to be careful. Um, these were accepted as temporary measures um, until the problem could be straightened out. So it's, it's a very different issue, though, when those restrictions are uh, seemingly permanent. And that is the situation now that I, I think we are finding ourselves in, is that um, many people don't feel that there's any end in sight for this 
uh, lockdown, shutdown uh, restrictions. Um, and <clears throat> so the the sort of talking point of um, oh these you know these stupid people can't uh, can't just accept uh, the um, they they just can't stop going to you know their neighborhood bar for two weeks to help stop the spread and we could have we could have saved all these people if people had just done their mask for the time period that we asked for. Um, well, the issue is that there's a lack of trust that the restrictions are uh, being managed and crafted in a way that uh, that is actually temporary. Um, and this this lack of trust in policymakers, uh, I would say, is much stronger on the right. Um, Republicans, libertarians in particular, have very, very little, very low trust in government, um, government policies. And I'm not going to necessarily say I put myself in that category, but I would say that I am, I tend to sympathize with that side more than the the side that seems to uh, somewhat, somewhat naively trust that the government just knows best. And if someone says that we have to shut down for four to eight weeks, that we have to, and that the after those four or eight weeks are done, that something positive will have come out of that, uh, some real benefit uh, rather than <clears throat> some kind of murky, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't work situation, which uh, seems quite apparent is, is what we're in now. Uh, the initial lockdown, shutdown <clears throat> stuff in April, <clears throat> March, April, May, I suppose, uh, the initial lockdown clearly didn't work um, because we're still here. We're still doing this. Uh, we still have restrictions on on our movement. We can't. We're not supposed to go visit family. We're not supposed to <clears throat> see anyone or do anything. Um, and it, it doesn't appear, at, at least from the layman's point of view, maybe epidemiologists or people in government know this. But it doesn't appear that there is any plan for how to really move forward and, and get people back to the level of restrictions that we had before all of this back in February. Um, so <clears throat> I would just ask that we, we start thinking of freedom not as uh, my freedom, uh, as a... Uh, something people just yell when they uh, they don't agree with something, or they they just sort of um, pathologically dislike rule. Well, I got disconnected. So uh, I would say uh, I I think we we don't want to think of freedom as just a a buzzword. Uh, in other words, a, a totemic statement that someone invokes, like William Wallace. They can never take our freedom. 
it, it has a real meaning and we need to kind of remember what that meaning is and dig into it. Um, the, the concept of freedom <clears throat> really is at the heart of, of bourgeois society. It, it's at the heart of, of American society and the West and, and all modern societies that, uh, are as have become prosperous and have modern economies and, um, and have developed things like advanced technology and, um, the amazing improvements of, of productivity that have enabled us to build a society where, where people aren't toiling, um, day and night. There's a, a lot of surplus in our world. Now we can argue on whether that's fairly distributed or whether it's, uh, perhaps pooling too much in the hands of the ultra wealthy. Uh, but the, the reality is that our, our society is extremely productive in a way that, uh, would not be possible if we, um, if we had not had a, a concept of personal freedom and freedom from state intervention that, uh, goes, really goes to the heart of, of, uh, the American experiment. Well, here I am. I'm in this apartment that I've lived in for the last three years, three years and some change. And I am cleaning everything out. So you may hear a bit of that in the background. I'm just pausing a bit to continue with the recording. So uh, I tried recording this a minute ago and it didn't go well. So I'm going to start over. Uh, Speaking about freedom in a contemporary American political context, I think it's important to start with one person in particular who has shaped the landscape of how we talk about freedom and what freedom means in the contemporary American context. And that person is W. himself, George W. Bush. Uh, I was a wee lad when 9-11 happened, and George W. Bush was the president. He was... Now, nowadays, it's almost forgotten that he was elected not only in a contested election, most people remember that, but that he was regarded as um, much in the way that Jeb actually was, was considered... Uh, as this uh, son of a prominent politician, George H.W. Bush, uh, who was reasonably popular in his time, a fairly conservative man, uh, but a statesman. He had been the director of the CIA, so of course all of the statist folks loved him. Um, I'm not going to go too off the rails with my anti-CIA rants at the moment, but George W. Bush came into power, and, and there's actually an SNL sketch that I saw um, recently that reminded me of this, that there was a belief at the time that, um, that W. was elected um, that he was like on the phone with his dad. It, it, this, this sketch depicted him calling his dad, 
and saying, Daddy, I didn't expect to win. Daddy, what do I do? Uh, and yeah, it's very comical, but I think there really was like a sense that no one took him seriously. Um, this was, you know, immediately following the election. So 2000, you know, early 2001, um, he would have, uh, this is the 2000 election, so he would have gotten in office in uh, January of 2001. Uh, there was a joke that he had um, uh, choked on a pretzel uh, when he was uh, first in, uh, in office. Um, I, I don't remember the exact context that this happened in, but uh, yeah, it was, this was like the talk of the town in uh, early 2001 that the president had, uh, you know, stupidly choked on a pretzel and, you know, this guy's just such a joker. Um, so, you know, he wasn't taken seriously, um, but he also wasn't seen as, you know, an ideologue or someone who was uh, particularly dangerous. Um, he was just sort of laughed at. The media didn't take him very seriously at all. And of course, then 2001, 9-11 happens, and George W. Bush is suddenly in a very unique position. Uh, and what comes out of the 2001, 9-11 incident is that George W. Bush, um, with approval from Congress, greatly expands the powers of the executive branch, uh, which in our tripartite uh, political system in the United States means that he dramatically reduced the powers of the Congress. Um, already we had been living in this strange uh, Vietnam era where, post-Vietnam era in which uh, the president could more or less declare war, and Congress could not, did not have to certify that as an, an act of declaration of war against a, a nation. We could just go to war with uh, a, a non-state actor within that country, um, like the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, right? We could just declare war against an organization that's not a nation state, um, and, and go to war. And George W. Bush pa passed the Patriot Act. Um, much of Congress also supported it. Then, of course, 2003 came the Iraq War. And let's not forget that Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, all of these now uh, supposedly uh, well-respected figures they all, of course, supported this effort. Um, it wasn't a, but it wasn't a, a partisan issue where uh, the Republicans wanted to go to war and the Democrats were resisting it, and they they all put on their pajamas and went down to the Capitol and pouted and sat on the stairs and and pretended to do a sit-in to prevent the war. Uh, no, they happily voted for it. In fact. Um, Everyone, everyone in the establishment supported the Iraq war. Um, the outsiders were really the only ones that opposed it. So the, the Patriot Act, I uh, suppose I should have drawn up some list of things that actually were passed by the Patriot Act, but 
it increases the amount of power that the federal government has to detain um, a, a U.S. citizen um, without, without trial. And this was done in the wake of 9-11 in the fear that terrorism was a thing now and was going to be um, around for a long time and we would perhaps see more and more deaths from terrorism. Uh, we had already seen a thousand or so people die in the uh, in the Twin Towers attack in New York. Um, of course, others had died in, in other in the other planes. Uh, but you know, of course, there's a risk at at that time that uh, there could be something much bigger coming, and maybe the next thing would would make the plane crashes look you know sort of like just a precursor to the, the main event. There was talk of dirty bombs, which uh, the concept is that um, a terrorist would get a hold of some nuclear material and without uh, actually uh, invoking fission on it, uh, they could explode a, a traditional explosive um, in the vicinity of this uh, of this bomb uh, of this nuclear material, and that uh, doing so would scatter the nuclear material and cause uh, radiation poisoning, and potentially take out you know very large city centers um, with with these attacks. Uh, chemical weapons were also uh, a big talking point, a big fear. Um, there's a belief that that was possible. And uh, and so you could imagine, I mean, I was a child when 2001, uh, when 9-11 happened. Uh, but you can imagine that uh, people probably felt similar to how uh, we feel now with the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, which is to say, uh, it, it, with hindsight, uh, we, we can say now, oh, uh, the terrorism thing was kind of overblown. Uh, clearly, the state used it as an excuse to pass the Patriot Act, which is just an expansion of federal power, reduces the transparency in government, gives all this extra power to the intelligence agencies, et cetera, et cetera. And, we, we, and many people, I think, probably agree with that perspective at this point. Uh, I actually read somewhere that 50% of Americans believe that 9-11 was an inside job, which, I, depending on how they structured the question, I think that might just mean they think that the government had some knowledge of it or used it in some way. Not, not quite sure how, they, how exactly they phrased that question. Um, so the expansion of the state... Um, happens because people are scared, and uh, there is a uh, a reasonable, I, I guess we can say reasonable fear of another attack that will be uh, even greater and even worse. Um, that uh, that we're not out of the weeds yet, and and that the next thing could be uh, you know a dirty bomb going off, um, staged by the same people that did 9/11. Um, and it could be in, in the middle of Manhattan. 
uh, and, and millions of people could die from the explosion. Uh, the radiation would basically level an American city. Um, and, uh, and this was seen as a real threat. Um, and, and so this is the context in which something like the Patriot Act is accepted. At the time, now this, this is interesting because this is, this is sort of my point. The, at the time, it was the conservatives who, um, who most readily, I would say, went along with all of this. Um, there, was, there were objections from civil libertarians um, and, and, and some on the left who were anti-war. The anti-war left, or um, I'm going to throw this shower curtain out because it's really gross. Or, uh, or just people who, who were suspicious of the motive of enlarging surveillance and illegally detaining people. There was also the um, national identity or you know, racial identity component of it in the sense of uh, targeting people who, who looked like they might be Middle Eastern uh, as higher risk for committing acts of terrorism. Um, and I, I don't, don't feel the need to elaborate on that any further, but there, there's obvious objections to much of this. Uh, but we went along with it. And uh, the Patriot Act is still there. And it is, in fact, uh, still being used to, uh, to spy on Americans. Um, this is, I would say, a pretty clear violation of, of the, the Fourth Amendment. Um, the, the Bill of Rights, you know, speaking of freedom, uh, the Bill of Rights does pretty explicitly say uh, unwarranted search and seizure is, is not permitted under the Constitution. Uh, but that's not going to stop them. So the, the, um, the point I'm trying to make is that George W. Bush is really the, f the first point in modern history where... Uh, we, we take the, the concept of freedom, meaning our freedom, our way of life, uh, and apply freedom as a, uh, as a tool of, of patriotic fervor uh, rather than a, uh, a political, philosophical concept and the, the, the basis for uh, Western... Uh, Western-style societies, uh, and the the uh, the media campaign around the Iraq War and Afghanistan, in particular, these uh, these efforts are are so were so successful in in galvanizing the uh, Republicans or the conservatives uh, that. The, the concept of freedom itself, I think, got tarnished in the process. And freedom then became um, this, this almost like cartoonish um, uh, version of, of patriotism, uh, of, of sort of mindless um, national, uh, national pride, jingoism, of saying, um, why is America the best? Why are we number one? Well, freedom. We have freedom. Well, what does that mean? You can't just say freedom. 
and, and again, it, it, um, it became a, a totemic phrase or a, um, a code word. Uh, we might compare it today to the, the concept of social justice or just justice in general, uh, which has become um, this sort of rallying cry um, rather than a, a concept that needs to be explored and articulated. Um, and so freedom, I think, as a concept, just sort of lost its luster in the 2000s. And, and then um, moving up into the, uh, the Obama era, um, now I'm, I'm not a historian, so I, I don't have any of this data or haven't compiled any of it, but I, I would guess that if you analyzed Obama's speeches, I would guess that he strays away from using the term freedom. Uh, and, and, and on the left, during the Obama era, uh, a, a major galvanizing um, concept for the left to, to mobilize the base there uh, and, and convert quite a few uh, conservatives over to Obama uh, was, uh, was the, the concept of gay rights and equal rights. And there, what there was, and is a sense that um, in many places in the United States, we we don't have equal rights. Uh, that that there are cultural forces, there are um, biases among those that are in power. There's a lack of transparency. Uh, there's a lack of accountability in uh, in policymakers that allows uh, discrimination and on the basis of, of supposedly protected um, categories and, and, um, and sexual identity or gender uh, identity was not seen as, as a protected category um, in the early 2000s. Um, and a, a major motivating factor to get the, the left to vote uh, and to, to become excited for Obama, who uh, I think history kind of has shown to be more of a middle-of-the-road um, establishment Clintonian politician rather than um, the, the JFK that um, his, his wonderful marketing team sort of made him out to be. Um, and so uh, the, the concept of... of uh, a freedom sort of got thrown aside and became, it, it was a good way of galvanizing conservatives. But if you wanted to get um, the, the gay rights, um, the equal rights, um, equality, fairness, justice, if you wanted to get those people on board, the, the people that were, you know, either in a, in a, um, in a group that was either oppressed or was perceived to be oppressed or or someone who um, culturally politically uh, aligned themselves with with that cause and consider themselves to be a quote ally uh, the the way you would do that rhetorically is uh, you talk about equal rights you talk about LGBT rights and um, and and especially I think liberals like to imagine themselves to be um, 
participating in a uh, a sort of um, a sort of civil rights movement. Um, the civil rights movement was was uh, ha has sort of become a um, an aesthetic an aesthetic uh, experience. I think for many people, um, the the actual the actual uh, concepts in many cases have been reversed uh, since the uh, since MLK. Um, much of Black Lives Matter, for example, is is staunchly opposed to the principles that MLK fought for. Um, uh, but aesthetically and rhetorically, uh, people on the left like to um, to be associated with a politician who, who speaks in terms of equal rights and equality and treating people fairly and so on and so forth. Um, so, so this is how I think that the term freedom sort of gets abandoned by the left and becomes uh, this um, marketing term that's really only used on the right uh, to get people to think about um, gun rights and uh, freedom to work, you know, this, the, the various um, touch points that like the GOP of the early 2000s would have, um, would have been all over. Um, they're a little different today, but yeah, I think, I think we can kind of decide that the George W. Bush era use of freedom in a patriotic jingoistic context has sort of damaged the brand of freedom. And as a political concept, no one on the left wants to touch it. I think this is a point at which it's going to start to get hard to talk about these concepts without uh, falling into some partisan um, traps. So I will float this. When we talk about freedom, uh, what I think of, or what matters to me, is the, the right to be left alone. It is a sense of, of non-obligation um, and, and of non-participation uh, in, in something. So in, in this conceptualization, uh, we have, uh, we have a state or let's start with something like a neighborhood association. Uh, let's say you live in a suburban community or some community where there's a housing association, neighborhood association, and, uh, and you have to abide by their rules, so you have to pay into uh, their uh, pool. They, they provide some common services that the community can use. Let's say, like, maybe there's a community garden. And so you pay your $20 a month as part of the community to, to the upkeep of that garden. Um, this is something you've you've known you consented to this when you bought your home and you moved in um, but let's say then that uh, that the 
housing association um, starts to pass uh, uh, con consistently more stringent um, demands on uh, on members. So instead of saying that that like uh, your house can be whatever color you want, um, it now can only be this one shade of brown. Um, and uh, maybe we'll have some restrictions on uh, when you can walk your dog because uh, some people have complained about dogs barking on the street at early in the morning or late at night. So we're, we're going to restrict dog walking from, uh, from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Nothing after that and nothing before 9 a.m. So these, these are placing constraints on, on you as a individual that um, you no longer can walk your dog whenever you want. You can't place, uh, paint your house whatever color you want. Um, and from the point of view of the someone who cares about freedom, uh, these are, are just restrictions on freedom. They are taking a freedom you, you should have. Uh, it's your house. You should be able to do what you want with it and uh, subjecting it to some limitations that would not naturally exist. Of course, there's some natural limitations, like you can't make your house fly, um, you can't go over to your neighbor's house and get out of here, stupid cat. You can't go over to your neighbor's house and paint his house, whatever you feel like. Um, there must be some limitations, uh, but if you're talking about modifying your own property, uh, that is a, a natural right that you would have unless we pass some law regulation taking away that ability. So this is uh, the concept of a, a negative right. So your, your homeowners association can't give you additional rights. Um, it can't, uh, it can't um, make your house capable of doing something that uh, that you couldn't do before or or make you capable of uh, sorry folks i got cut off uh so this analogy of the the neighborhood association your your neighborhood association can't um give you additional rights uh over your house right it can it can only take away rights um it it's uh it can, if it takes away your right to walk your dog at two in the morning, uh, it could then later say, uh, if the, the dog walking hours are 9 a.m. to 10 p.m., it could then, then later say, we're extending our right for you to, uh, to be able to walk your dog whenever you want. And uh, you may conceptualize this if you were used to uh, the dog walking from uh, from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m., you may conceptualize this as, oh, the homeowners association has given us back our, given us the the right to, uh, to walk our dogs, uh, but in, but in fact, uh, it is actually something you should have naturally had, you would have naturally had the right to if the uh, housing association hadn't taken it from you. Um, so by, this is by analogy, we can apply this to, to government. Um, you have a, a right to speak, to believe what you want to believe, 
to work and prosper and save money, purchase things, own property, travel, uh, go to a store, visit your friends, have friends, get married, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, to put things in your body, to cut things out of your body, let's say. These are natural rights that you would have if you were, say, living in a isolated rural village somewhere where no one knows what you're doing and you're kind of there on your own. Um, And if the government were to suddenly ban something like, say, you're not allowed to see your friends anymore or you're never going to be able to go to a store without wearing a mask. And then they decide later to remove that restriction. The government is not uh, granting you a right, or they're not extending your rights in any way. They're merely removing a restriction that they placed on your rights. So this is a, a sort of a libertarian concept that I think gets lost sometimes in translation um, talking to the left. Basically, the concept you, you might think if you're on the left and you care about civil rights and that's how you conceptualize freedom, think of it this way. Uh, a, a black person who wanted to eat at a diner in the 1950s in Jim Crow South, the, the government did not uh, grant them the right to do that. Uh, by passing civil rights legislation, they merely removed the restriction uh, by by passing legislation to to pressure the local governments into compliance. This was not again not that the uh, the president or the Congress had. Uh, looked at you know a, a list of rights somewhere and said, oh, I see, we forgot to grant the rights to uh, black Americans um, to eat in a diner of their choosing or to attend a school uh, with white children as well. It was something that was taken away from them. And the government... Uh, needed to increase legal pressure on on the local ordinances to prevent uh, to prevent, for example, the state of Georgia from enforcing segregation. Uh, segregation was a, a violation of rights. It was not uh, civil rights. Was I, I think actually in some ways framing the civil rights movement as rights that were won, uh, I think is a, is a problematic way of discussing the civil rights movement. I think we can think of it better in terms of, of freedoms, that uh, black Americans should have had the freedom to uh, earn money and, uh, and live where they want and um, have, uh, have, full access to uh, any restaurant or store 
or school that they would prefer to and, and to live without harassment. Um, and that was taken away from them. Now, importantly, uh, in this era of the buzzword being systemic racism, importantly, remember that Jim Crow South was a set of laws. It, it wasn't that uh, things, uh, the, the Jim Crow policies were enforced by, um, you know, um, uh, renegade individuals who uh, refused to give uh, black Americans their freedom. It was enforced by the government, uh, the state government. Um, and uh, this was the case in Alabama, Georgia, all of these um, southern states. Of course, there were uh, similar restrictions in, in other states. Uh, I'm not an expert on uh, on the legal side of it, so I'm not going to uh, be able to cite anything. But consider thinking of this not in terms of we won rights, we won the right to vote, or we won the right to uh, attend school, or we won, we won the right to not be harassed because of our, our race. Um, you had that freedom in, in a natural state, and it was the government that took it from you. So um, I think this is a point where the left and right in the U.S., in contemporary contexts can come together um, because uh, I think both want the same thing, uh, which is freedom for everyone. Um, and the the way that the left goes about it is in this context of, of rights that are granted by the government. And this is a, this is the wrong way of framing it. Um, it, it's a it's a very pro government way of framing it, right? Instead of um, being critical of the government and thinking, wait, these these people um, made it uh, made it possible for these uh, discriminatory laws and and terrible mistreatment to take place for for decades. Um, why would we trust them now to to pass legislation that would give them rights? Uh, we just need the basic rights. We just need the freedoms, uh, freedom to speak, freedom to practice a religion, freedom uh, of to um, freedom to defend yourself, um, freedom to uh, to pursue uh, wealth and and to earn money. Uh, the uh, the, these are basic freedoms, and and this is this is goes to the heart of what is written in the Constitution, and the Constitution uh, it comes out of the Enlightenment and and the principles of the Enlightenment, uh, the bourgeois values of of freedom, and we we get lost in the U.S. talking about um, civil rights because uh, again it's it's um, where where can the left go from um, from like trying to uh, pose themselves as the inheritors of of the civil rights movement? Um, well, there's only so many you know so many things you can do to keep earning special rights for people um, in order to justify that 
the, the state must be involved here rather than, hey, let's get the state out of the way and, um, and just ensure that, that basic freedoms are being guaranteed. Um, that's the libertarian approach is uh, we don't need all these legislations. We don't need all this civil rights activism constantly. We just need to, we just need to enforce the Constitution. Um, we need to guarantee freedom. For everyone, regardless of their race or gender or how they see themselves as a, a particular gender or their sexuality or their religion, everyone everyone has the same universal rights. Uh, and uh, this has a, a, a very nice uh, secondary effect, which is that um, when I am when I am advocating for my own freedom. Uh, I'm also advocating for your freedom, because uh, if I believe in universal freedom and universal rights, uh, then uh, I'm not, my, it's not a zero-sum game, as, as it is often depicted in, uh, in the, on the left, I would say in particular on the left. Um, you know, um, black rights is often pitched as uh, we need, uh, now this is more of the, the radical left, uh, the Antifa BLM kind of crowd. Uh, you know, the, we need, we need equal rights between black people and white people. That means that we need to redistribute money. We need to go and take property from uh, certain groups and give it to other groups, or we need to do this through the monetary system or payments, checks, or something. Um, and that, I, I think, is a, a giant mistake, and that's, that's really, I think, why, why people leave the left, is because the, the discourse often turns into this tribalism and, um, and sort of... Uh, zero-sum game when it comes to freedom, whereas freedom is more properly understood in a political context, in the context of the Constitution, as universal rights. And universal rights are, are much easier to get behind because, of course, um, if I'm advocating for your rights, I'm also advocating for my rights, if they are universal. Um, but if we're going to make this into a uh, us versus them kind of conflict, then it turns into almost a sectarian conflict of uh, are you in favor of black rights? Are you in favor of trans rights? Are you in favor of gay rights? Um, well, if you are, then you, know, you should be opposed to, um, to uh, rural white people uh, having access to education or having um, <laughs> having the freedom to to speak and worship religion and and uh, pursue their own uh, economic ends and um, and all of this all of this kind of just turns into a big horrible mess very quickly um, and this is why I really don't think of myself as on the left anymore because, uh, because of this sort of sectarian way of thinking. Um, 
Now, there is, I think, a better, a bigger and better kind of freedom. And that is what I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, and that's more of the philosophical freedom, which only you can choose on your own. It's not a political concept. It's more a, a manner of how you live your life. All right. So speaking of divisiveness, and I'm in the car again, so you're going to hear that. Speaking of divisiveness, uh, one of the strangest things about living in COVID-1984 is how suspicious people are of one another or how um, unkind they are. Um, it's not uh, it's not unusual for people to be a bit abrasive in, in urban settings, urban environments. Um, but uh, where I live ha- has always been pretty friendly. Um, it's, it's not, uh, it's not like a New York, LA, um, kind of, uh, very tense, um, heavy, uh, heavy population density kind of place. And so, um, there's never been that much kind of tension, but, but lately people have been really, um, quite rude and, um, and suspicious of one another. Um, you know, even just today I went to try to get a sandwich from the sandwich place nearby and there was a girl there who, um, who was like afraid to be near me, I think. I, I couldn't quite tell, but um, she just seemed like she was strangely um, terrified of of being near another person. She was waiting for her sandwich uh, outside um, because it's all outdoors now, and um, and I was standing there. You know, I I guess maybe she wanted to be more than six feet away from me. Um, but you know, it, it's just, it just adds to this overall sense of, of people are pitted against one another and, um, there's no like collective good. It's kind of like, um, there's kind of two, two responses to COVID-1984. Like there's on the one hand, the people who are saying, that, um, that like, it's, uh, uh, I'm just protecting myself, you know, people who are kind of, um, don't seem to, to care too much about, um, don't, don't seem to care very much about, like, the, we need to save all human life kind of people, but, but more just, like, I'm terrified personally, so I'm, like, I don't want to be near you, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want anything to do with you. Um, and then we also, and then you also have the people who are, are like, um, like a friend of mine in, um, in St. Louis, uh, <laughs> said something like, uh, cause I had mentioned, I went out to, um, uh, this was like in, in like April. So like there really was nothing, but like I went to the park for a run, um, which is completely fine. Um, in, 
in the town where I live, uh, completely legal, uh, totally within the, the guidelines and everything. Um, but this guy just, he just didn't like that I was, uh, doing anything at all to, to, uh, that wasn't like completely essential for my, um, my most base animal, um, nourishment, you know, uh, like, I guess I'm just supposed to be in my apartment, um, with an IV drip and like eating gruel and, uh, and like, that's just, I'm just supposed to do that for the next five years or 10 years or 20 years, uh, and just sort of like stop existing because it's inconvenient for him that I, that I exist and I am a human being and, and want to do things. Uh, but this guy, his, his, uh, objection, what took the form of, of, you know, you are putting my son or my children in danger. You're putting me and my children in danger because you're spreading the virus. And, and this guy lives a thousand miles away from me. Like in what world does this make any kind of sense? Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's totally illogical. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It's just, uh, it's just the pandemic logic. It's the, it's the fear factor. It's like, it's again, it's like nine 11. Uh, if you could convinced some people in, in 2001 that like, um, you know, if you, if you go to a grocery store, um, or you go to the park, you know, you're more likely to have future terrorism events. So, uh, you'd probably have the same thing of people calling you up and saying, you know, you should stop what you're doing. You're killing people. You're, you're creating more terrorism. What are you doing? You horrible monster. So it's a very strange, strange time, but it, it actually helps it's helped me a bit by helping me to filter out the people that I really, I really don't feel I need to have in my life. Um, and it, that has turned out to be actually most people. Um, but uh, you know, in particular, these sort of like, I would say legacy friends who, uh, this is a guy that I went to college with. I haven't seen him in at least 10 years. Uh, actually, I think I may have seen him in, like six years ago when when he got married or somebody got married. Uh, why is this dude just sitting here? Um, but yeah, in any case, the um, the uh, the problem with uh, with all of this this way of of like making these sectarian political positions for everything and making everyone afraid and making them think that they are, uh, others, other people are responsible for them, um, being put in danger, uh, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. It's, it's very stupid. Um, it's, it's absolutely the wrong way of, of doing this. Um, the, the masks, you know, the mask mandates are, are terrifying people. Um, 
there it's a very bad idea i think to to make it a mandate or make it enforceable by law um you you're you're going to waste a lot of the police time um on these things for one thing uh you you can't really uh, have the police uh going out and arresting people and beating them up or whatever for for not wearing masks um you know, because it just, it sort of doesn't scale, right? Like, uh, once that happens, do you think that, do you think that Americans are going to fall in line because you like made an example of somebody for not wearing a mask? I don't think so. I think probably the opposite would happen where people would become enraged and, and go out and in protest, they would just stop wearing masks entirely. So, uh, the only thing that's keeping people from, from totally discarding it is, is, their goodwill that that they think this is at least somewhat necessary uh here we are back on the open road here i'm heading up to the new apartment again this is my i think third trip um my car is full of junk some of it is just going to end up in my storage unit, which may as well be the garbage as far as I'm concerned. I don't, I don't see myself really taking anything out of there anytime soon. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, this has been an interesting time for my, my life. Um, I think that the, um, I think that the, you know, the hardline lockdown people, um, like that friend that I described, um, who come down really harshly on anyone that isn't, um, completely isolated for the entire year, um, they tend to be people who have, uh, have a, some kind of home life, um, they have a wife or a girlfriend, uh, or maybe roommates, um, or they live with family or, or some combination thereof. Uh, I think that I, I, I don't want to be all special snowflake about, about the, the troubles that I've had, but I wonder if some of these people have thought, um, stop to think what would it be like if if I didn't have any family around what what would it be like if I lived completely alone and I didn't have any family or a spouse or a significant other or anyone that I'm really that close with who would be a um who, who would be my pod or, or whatever you want to call it, your isolation group, um, if we had to go into complete isolation for uh, years. <laughs> because as far as I'm concerned, if this lasts until um, March of next year, February or March of next year, then I, I'm just assuming it will continue indefinitely for five to ten years or maybe longer than that however long it would take for uh people to kind of stop 
caring about terrorism all that much after 9-11, which, again, I think was about 2006, 2007. It took about that long before there were still stories about the wars going on and terrorism, and Stephen Colbert was at his height making fun of the Bush administration and the uh, ridiculous rhetoric and... Uh, the way that the media would try to spin stories to make it seem as though terrorism was uh, the sole threat to all of our lives, uh, even though the odds of you personally being harmed by a terrorist attack were about on par with being attacked by an alligator. If you lived in Florida, it'd probably be greater that you'd be attacked by a gator. Um... But, uh, yeah, I, I wonder if this is going to go on for five, ten years. <coughs> um, you can't have single people or, um, or, you know, elderly people or just people that live alone who don't have many connections. Um, I, I think I, I, I read somewhere that something like 50% of American households are now one person. So 50% of Americans live alone, uh, which is tremendous. Uh, And I don't know if that includes, uh, I'm I'm sure it only includes adults. So um, I don't know if there are maybe 250 million adults in the U.S., something like that and half of them live alone, I mean, you are putting an enormous strain on over, well over 100 million people, um, and just sort of telling them that if they, if they do anything to, um, to overcome the impossible situation, uh, that you've put them in, uh, that they are, uh, literally killing, people, that they are responsible for, um, for deaths and that millions of people are going to die, um, because of their selfishness. So I, I don't know, I haven't seen any statistics that would suggest this yet, but I, I would guess that suicide has to be, um, way more than doubled at this point, uh, suicide rate for the 2020 year. Uh, I guess we won't know until the end of the year. Uh, I know that in Japan, it's been um, really out of control. Uh, the number of suicides has, has greatly increased. And of course, Japan is already a culture that has uh, suicide uh, as a major problem. Um, it's a very, very common cause of death. Um, here, here, I think we have... Um, we have really, you can, you can kind of see in the lockdowns and in the rhetoric around lockdowns and, um, and again, this sort of like anti-freedom rhetoric and the, the anti-freedom attitudes, uh, we can see the, what I will call the, the gentry liberal, uh, uh, biases, uh, come into play. Um, gentry liberals, which is what I mean by people with a, a significant 
income probably more, probably mo- certainly more than the, the national average for a household, um, tend to be more suburban, although there's a strong urban contingent as well, uh, tend to be more white, uh, and they are, uh, they, they tend to have quite a bit more wealth and to skew a bit older, uh, middle-aged, I would say. Um, and the, the gentry liberal attitude is, um, sort of, uh, uh, a let them eat cake attitude as I've seen in, in these sorts of situations where, you know, it's sort of, well, I have my big house with my yard and I, I can afford to, um, stay home with my children and work from home, work remotely, um, for the next five to 10 years. Um, and my children will just do distance learning or I'll, have them on Zoom calls with their teacher or tutors or something for the next five years. Um, and I'm doing something to save the world by doing this, by restricting myself and not allowing myself to, to go out and go to a restaurant or something or talk to friends. Uh, and if you don't do the same thing, then you are evil, essentially. Um, now this is, of course, this is making an assumption that your, um, you, you have a family for one thing, you have people in your household, um, because, you know, the ruling is you're not supposed to, uh, consort with other households, uh, or you're not allowed to have more than two households together or something like that. Um, depends on the, the jurisdiction, I think. Um, but if you're saying that people can't combine households and half of all Americans are a household of one, you're you're essentially telling half of America, uh, that they are not allowed to, um, to come in contact with anyone for the rest of their lives, as far as they know. Uh, because again, we, we have, we started out making these, um, unfortunate, uh, assumptions about uh, how long the restrictions would last. And I think that governments just did this to, to, you know, improve uh, compliance uh, because, of course, people are more likely to comply for two weeks than they would be if you were to say, uh, just shut everything down forever. We don't know when we're going to ever let you out again. Um, then people will not comply at all. Um, so the fact that uh, they unfortunately made those uh, declarations early and, and made the two weeks to stop the spread uh, slogan uh, go viral and, and pass that around as, um, as, you know, quote unquote, believing the science or trusting the science. Um, you know, now, now we're in a situation where the public uh, doesn't, doesn't trust the officials at all anymore. And, and so when you tell me that I'm not supposed to, um, do anything for the rest of my life, um, I, I'm supposed to just lock myself in my apartment and just die, I guess. Um, uh, because I'll, I'll die of, of, uh, lack of, of exercise. Um, I won't have, uh, I won't have any real reason to, to live. Um, if I'm not supposed to even leave my apartment and I live alone, 
um, you know, of course, like people who want to establish relationships, um, if you're a young person and you, you are out in the world, that's what you're doing. You're, you're still establishing your relationships. You don't have, you're not married with, with two children at home and you're just sort of like circling the wagons and waiting until the pandemic blows over. You know, there are people of, from in all stages of life that are stuck in the middle of this and trying to figure out how to live their lives. Well, you know, when you have like a, a house in the suburbs and a wife and kids, uh, the answer is quite clear. You just circle the wagons, right? Like just order Domino's for dinner and, you know, get it delivered and stay home and don't talk to anybody and keep your distance and don't go to Thanksgiving dinner and don't go to Christmas and just sort of hang in there and uh, you'll do okay because you have your remote job and your income is still there. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's quite a bit different when it's, it's like literally just you alone in, in a room. Um, and that's what everybody in New York and LA and especially these big cities where it's mostly single people, you know, where they're, they're dealing with this, that they're, they're not that compliant because they're, it is not realistic. Um, it, it isn't really possible to ask someone who uh, has no family for hundreds of miles and who may have just recently moved to a city and who lives in a tiny box, a co tiny concrete box, a studio apartment or, or something like that, uh, to ask them uh, to just stay in that apartment and not go anywhere or do anything for the next two to five years. That's not realistic. Uh, you're not going to get compliance because it's an unrealistic uh, goal. So it would really be nice if if the officials could sort of acknowledge this. Um, uh, but you can see that the officials are heavily slanted toward um, certain types of constituencies that uh, there's a certain perspective that they uh, they are skewed toward. Uh, namely the the gentry liberal perspective, and that is the the suburban stay home, stay safe, uh, you know hashtag uh, orange man bad um, uh, type of type of person, and um, that's who I spend a lot of my days around. Um, I don't know about anyone else who listens to this. If if anyone listens to this, um, but yeah, I, I've I've I know this perspective well. I mean, it, it's it's sort of the background radiation of my life. It's it's like the people that I I work with, the people that I uh, live near, um, many of the people that I've 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 gotten to know, or if I go out and meet people, they're they're very likely to fall into this category, and um, and uh, it's it's you know it's hard to uh, to get them to realize that they're. The, the policies or the way that they're framing the the approach to COVID-1984 is uh, very much skewed in favor in favor of the uh, the gentry liberals. <clears throat> well, folks, I this episode has gone a lot longer than I intended it to. Uh, it's also gone a little bit off the rails, and I'm kind of running out of space to talk about. Uh, stoicism. So I'm going to cut it off at this point. Uh, but I will uh, reminisce a little bit about my um, my move here since it's been 
kind of been happening. Uh, I've been recording this episode throughout the day as I've been doing my moving tasks and uh, resting here and there um, while uh, while completing the move. Uh, as I said, I you know I was living downtown in the city that I'm in. Uh, I don't want to disclose my location to avoid messing up my anonymity, but I suppose you could probably figure it out if you really wanted to. I think I may have put it on one of my Mastodon accounts. But uh, the downtown area here when I moved in about three years ago uh, was this vibrant, uh, newly... Uh, developing area it had really been neglected for for decades I mean maybe maybe like a century uh, no development uh, it, it was uh, it was the, the place to go if you wanted to um, if you wanted to uh, like go to the row of bars that's downtown and uh, you know college students would be there um, Bums and sort of ne'er-do-wells would gather as well, uh, but it wasn't really the kind of place that um, anyone of uh, of any uh, means would. Um, sorry, these gates in my building are really noisy and strange. No one of means would bother to to go downtown. Um, it was more a place to hang out if you're like a gutter punk or you were into the gutter punk music scene. Uh, and everyone lived, um, in the sort of outer suburban areas. Um, and then in the last 10 or so years, uh, it, it became the super valuable real estate as the downtown area started to develop again. And, uh, and there are, uh, big, big buildings coming up, uh, companies moving their headquarters or are establishing an office there uh instead of you know in a corporate um park somewhere out in the in the burbs uh and the and the downtown area was was starting to really develop it had a lot of restaurants and cafes and things that um that really made it feel like uh, like a big city i mean it's not a very big city but um but all of these towns that uh, you know may be seen as like an up-and-coming city in the U.S., um, they're they all kind of had this this revitalization of the downtown area in the last you know 10, 15 years. And I've lived there for I, I lived there for three years up until today, and uh, I haven't turned in my keys yet. But once I do, I'll have officially left downtown. Um, and, and I'll probably never come back. I probably won't uh, go to any anything downtown uh, the rest of the time I live here. Uh, 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 maybe uh, maybe in five, ten years if things uh, really turn around and change. Uh, but it's it's been uh, shocking how quickly this sort of revitalizing um, hip and trendy <laughs> downtown area has gone gone completely downhill. Um, just in the time that I've lived there for three years, uh, the the restaurants have all closed, of course. Um, but not only that, but many of the longtime establishments, um, you know, like like a bars that have been there uh, for um, you know almost a century, 
uh, they're all gone too. I mean, they've, they've really like everything is gone. Um, and so, uh, I don't know when or, or if this, uh, this area will come back. I mean, it may, uh, there's a lot of homeless there now. There, it, there's a lot of homeless, um, living in the streets or, um, camping out in the parks. Uh, well, I'm kind of giving away where it is now, I guess. <laughs> Hopefully you can't put that together. Uh, and, and so they're really, um, it, it really is not a, a desirable place to be at all. Um, there's, there's really no reason to be there. And, and on top of that, you know, depending on the part of downtown that you were in, if you were there this summer, uh, you had to deal with, uh, Antifa attacks, um, on top of, on top of all of that, on top of the restaurants closing and, and COVID and, um, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 <clears throat> homeless uh, population exploding and, and sort of taking over, um, different public, uh, spaces. You've also had to deal with, uh, with the, uh, the Antifa attacks, which, uh, I, I've talked about in the past a bit on this podcast or whatever this thing is, I guess it's a podcast. Uh, but this is really the reason that I've left. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of looking back and looking back at it now. I, I, it's, it's like another world, you know, I, I really feel like, um, life has really significantly changed, uh, for the last uh, nine months. I mean, certainly the last year, um, I, I had some, some personal, uh, troubles, um, even before the pandemic, um, namely I, I lost my job. Um, I had a, a relationship that was, it was, was very intense for me, um, that, that really fizzled out and, and kind of, um, kind of went, went rough. Uh, and, and a family member of mine had committed suicide, um, uh, just a couple of weeks before I, I was, uh, laid off and lost my job. So it, it's been really rough. This has all happened in, in the span of only 12, 12 months. Um, not, maybe not even 12 months. Um, uh, and, and so it's been tough. Um, like I said, the, the purpose of this podcast is to try to find some strength in all of this and to find the, um, the basis of virtue, uh, and, and a philosophical system, uh, a sort of, uh, cobbled together, uh, replacement for religion. Um, I don't, I don't consider myself religious. I'm not looking for religion. Um, but I do need a, a, a code, uh, an ethic to, to live by. And, uh, that's what I'm seeking. So, uh, I'm going to continue recording stuff here. Uh, I don't know if anyone really listens to this, but if you made it this far, uh, you're like a super fan at this point. So uh, take care, everybody.